Hello. We all know how incredibly tough this winter is proving for the health and care system. That's for some very specific reasons, of which, of course, COVID and the COVID backlog are the most important. But we've also seen the crisis cruelly expose problems that have built up for years. For example, the failures of workforce planning or the deep weaknesses of our care system. And in the crisis, we've also been reminded of the seeming intractability of issues that we have tried to address over and over again. Just about every hospital leader I speak to tells me they have many, sometimes hundreds of people, mainly older people, in hospital who could be in community settings or at home if only the support was available to them. Today on Health on the Line, I'm speaking to a high-profile and distinguished clinician and leader who has strong views on how we need to rethink not just the solutions to issues like delayed discharge, but whether we're even asking the right questions. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. I'm excited to be joined by David Oliver. David has been an NHS doctor for 33 years and a consultant in geriatrics and general internal medicine for 24 years. He looked after acute COVID wards for months on end during the pandemic peaks. And alongside David's busy clinical commitments as an acute hospital consultant, he's played a variety of other senior roles, giving broad experience in policy, professional leadership, medical management, academia, and medical journalism. David, I could go on for hours about your many achievements, but let's just start with how things are where you are in the health service. I mean, everyone I speak to talks about immense pressures, but how do things feel? You're, I think you're, you're, you're in Berkshire, I'm in Berkshire, yeah. I, I mean, so uh, I'm at Royal Berkshire Hospital. We're one of the biggest district general hospitals in the country, big catchment area. And uh, I was on call yesterday till about nine o'clock at the front door in the acute medical unit. I've been on the wards all day today. It's busy, and it gets busier every year, and our figures show that really. Only five years ago, we were getting about 350 people through our emergency department every 24 hours. We're up in the high 400s now, and, of course, that follows through into medical admissions. Uh, We also have the same problems everywhere else has with delayed transfers, even though we've got some fantastic local community health services. Um, And we have some quite tired staff who've gone through two years of COVID medicine, What I can report is that in terms of COVID per se, we're nowhere near at the moment the kind of numbers I was seeing when I worked through last Christmas and New Year, where a third of our beds had COVID patients and our intensive care unit doubled. We're seeing a small trickle of COVID cases coming in. So it's more of the uh, traditional so-called winter pressures at the front door and exit block at the back door. But of course, uh, although I work in acute care, I know that my colleagues in elective care are facing a major catch-up backlog uh, uh, in the, the fallout from two years of COVID medicine. And we're facing the same problems everyone has about staffing gaps in some specialties and around uh, social care shortages in particular. So when we try to analyse just this particular moment, uh, David and uh, and what's caused it. I mean, my sense is that it's a combination of the following things. First of all, it's the effect of ten years of austerity, which has left us with uh, real problems in terms of a, of, of the workforce gaps in the workforce and also a depleted capital stock. So even though the money we're going to get 
next year and the year after is fine. It's not fine because of the fact that we built up those problems during the years of austerity. Then you've got COVID, which, as you say, is fewer numbers now. But of course, there is a danger now with Omicron that it will rise. Then you've got the backlog of COVID. And then you've got the fact that the way we organize our health service means that winter is always tough for us because we assume high occupancy rates. We have lower numbers of beds per 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 citizen than most other developed countries. Would that be your analysis of why it is, you know, things are so difficult, that combination of factors? I think fundamentally that the COVID pandemic has exposed some long-standing structural problems that those of us in the health policy world knew were there to begin with. The lack of social care provision and workforce, which has been compounded by Brexit and immigration rules, uh, the failure to plan the workforce, the fact that England in particular has just about the lowest bed base per capita and lowest intensive care bed base per capita in, in OECD nations, and the ever-rising uh, amount of front door activity, which of course the hospital doesn't largely control, and the higher rates of exit block at the back door, albeit that we've stopped reporting official delayed transfers of care figures, they were always, as the National Audit Office um, reported a few years back, uh, a bit of a fiction anyway. They underestimate the real numbers. Um, but I think on top of all of that, you've got the effect of COVID on the workforce, you know, fatigue and morale and the big backlog on elective care. And of course, with one or two exceptions in the UK, we don't separate uh, elective from acute sites. And so anything that happens in the acute bed base has implications for the, the catch-up work. So I, I, I think we'd probably share the analysis of where we are and or I guess what we can do for the next few months. And it's, of course, a much more acute view because you're there actually at the front line is, is tr hope that we can get through this. But I, I want to talk about some of these kind of issues that have been exposed. I want to start with one that you've just written uh, uh, about just in the last few days, I think, which is this question of delayed uh, discharge. When a problem is so apparently intractable, in the end, you have to start saying, well, hang on, may maybe we're not even asking the right questions about it. Maybe the assumptions we're making are wrong uh, about this. And I, So, so what, what's your sense of how it is we, we, we don't find ourselves in another 20 years with hospital leaders saying, well, of course, one of my big problems is I've got hundreds of people in hospital who don't need to be here? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. So uh, what, what I wrote about this week in the BMJ was about the the kind of almost fetishization of rapid discharge at all costs as the kind of the one metric by which we're judged. And the point being that that is largely driven by the fact we've got A, a low bed base, and B, many beds effectively taken out of commission uh, by delays. Uh, and when I was in the Department of Health uh, towards the tail end of the Labour government in the first three years of the coalition, again, I was endlessly having to brief uh, ministers about delayed transfers and readmissions. So it is a perennial problem. It's very fashionable to go and quote um, bed audits from consultancy firms saying that whatever figure you like, a third, a quarter of people in hospitals no longer need to be there. And that's technically true. If the capacity outside the hospital was actually available, but of course they hypothetically 
no longer need to be in hospital. The capacity to get them out doesn't exist. It's also quite fashionable to say that if hospitals sorted out their own internal procedures and flow and delays, then many of these uh, problems wouldn't happen. So I think it is worth saying that we do have to put our own house in order. We have to make sure at the front door we have senior decision makers well into the evening, seven days a week. We have a real focus on uh, trying to assess people quickly, turn them around quickly, and work with community partners so they don't come in in the first place because a lot of socially vulnerable people who are sucked into hospital wards beyond the front door will get stuck. They will get stranded. But even if you have a relentless focus on daily senior review, discharge planning, checking in about um, actions that you need to escalate, we only have around half the capacity in out-of-hospital intermediate care-style services we need. This has been shown in several rounds of the National Audit of Intermediate Care, and it's been highlighted by the National Audit Office report on discharge. And then, of course, we've had sustained cuts to social care funding and provision since 2010. We have no more care home places now than we had a decade ago. We've got 100,000 vacancies in the social care workforce. And so inevitably, however sharp we are within the hospital's internal flow, if people need post-acute rehabilitation, if they need long-term care, if they need personal care at home, then we have to provide that. And that's not in the hospital's gift. And there's also often considerable stress for families and carers. Again, it's the, the politicians are very fond of saying that families should look after their own elders, but the vast majority of care in this country is given by unpaid family members, uh, and they are stressed because of a lack of support. So these, these problems have been uh, uh, extant for years. But the other thing is that the case mix in hospitals is not what it was when I started out. The core business now of acute hospitals is older people with multiple long-term conditions, with frailty, with dementia. So there are just more people coming in with the kind of problems that require step-down uh, services outside hospital. And we have missed a trick repeatedly by failing to invest in those services. And is there a danger that as we now focus again on the elective backlog, that the that we're just going to persist with this, that everyone, even with the problem staring us in the face in the way that it is, you know, the politicians and to an extent the public say, well, no, the number one priority is the elective backlog. And that, of course, pulls money back into the acute sector and and, and, and we're, we're back at square one. Well, I think you're as aware, probably more aware of the real politique and the comms challenge you know, than I am really. And I think the answer is during the new Labour years, uh, wait time targets and access were made a big political priority because the public really were bothered by them. And that's understandable. Um, but we've ended up embedding access to GPs and uh, wait times, both in urgent and elective care in hospitals, as things that are measured and reported on and the system leaders are judged on. And I just don't think that social care or community health services are as high in the public consciousness. There's only about 860,000 people in receipt of um, social care, adult social care, for instance. Most people don't come into contact with a social care service. They don't know much about it. And I think that's why it's been easier to marginalise and put it on the back burner. And you only have to look at the recent allocation of funding in the Building Back Better. I think I'm right in saying it was about $34 billion over three years, of which only $5.4 billion was going to social care. Because I think we know that the public are more concerned about access to their GP and access to acute hospital care and the more kind of 
telegenic and uh, and newsworthy. So, for instance, the fact that district nursing workforce has been decimated over the past 10 years or um, the uh, health visiting workforce, the fact that we don't have sufficient capacity in community health services, I just don't think it plays big in news values and therefore not in political priorities. But if if I was kind of benevolent dictator and I could do one thing to solve the problems uh, in both the acute care system and to an extent for primary care, it's that investment in those things like hospital at home or intermediate care, uh, rehabilitation or, or care planning outside hospital. And of course, uh, about a third of adults in acute hospitals right now in effect in the last 12 months of their life, we still have a situation where hospices are largely funded via charity and are without the mainstream of NHS funding. So I just think at every point where we've put extra investment into the service, it's been hoovered up into acute bedded care and uh, not sufficiently into other primary or community health services. Now, I completely agree. And my, my experience of policy teaches me, David, that if you want to solve a complex problem, you have to you have to address you have to address it simultaneously in a number of ways. It's very difficult to use one lever uh, to solve a complex problem. And and so, let, if we look at some of the elements that would be needed to solve this, the first is, and I do think there's been change here. One of the things I was delighted about and proud of when I joined the Confederation was that the Confederation set up the Health for Care Alliance which is an explicit attempt to say, to bring together health organisations who say collectively social care matters as much as health. And, you know, in as, you know, in as much as we as health bodies lobby for more money for health, we will equally argue that we need greater investment in social care. And, and you may have heard me and uh, also Chris Hobson from NHS Providers recently in talking about the winter crisis, saying if the if you if there was any if there was spare cash, don't give it to the health service. Use it to give uh, you know dowry payments or top ups to social care staff to try to address the the shortages there. So we can, we I think I think there's been a shift in recognition now and a willingness of people in the health system to to recognise that their fate is inextricably tied up with that with the social care uh, system. No, I think that's right. And, and, and I was the vice president of the Royal College of Physicians till 2019, and we were a member of the NHS Confed-led uh, Health for Care Alliance. And I think you're absolutely right. There has been a sea change where quite openly healthcare people, including acute hospital people, are saying that has to be a priority at the moment, and not just investment in social care, but to uh, reinvest in public health and prevention policy and population health and well-being. I think it's a, it's a move in the right direction, albeit that we've so far repeatedly ducked at government level meaningful, sustainable solutions to social care funding and provision. And bear in mind, the um, if you look at the Health Foundation analysis, we face something like a seven billion gap just to restore social care to levels of provision we had in 2010, let alone to expand access, because the criteria for accessing social care at all are quite restrictive. But I know I think it's it's really good to see, and I'm hoping that the um, integrated care systems do go beyond paper talk and lead to some more meaningful um, look across uh, a population about where the resource should be. Uh, of course, in the end, although we do have a very low hospital bed base, and I don't want to advocate closing wards, the brave thing is for hospitals to say, well, if we do have... X percentage of beds occupied by people who don't need to be there. Perhaps we need to take some of that uh, resource and put it into prevention and community services. 
Well, that takes me then to the, the, the second aspect to this. So one is, again, as it were, political about solidarity, about recognition that we're in the same boat together, combining our kind of political strength to argue for greater investment in social care. But the second is integration uh, of services. And indeed, just this afternoon, I was at a conversation um, in Whitehall about the integration uh, white paper. I think a, a big part of that is going to be integration measures do you think that having system leaders and place leaders being held to account for integration measures would be something that would make a difference i think notionally it's a good idea i mean i would i would just caution people to look at the devolved nations which when they devolved scrapped internal markets and purchase provider splits and do have something more akin to what we're planning here with regional health boards they still to a greater or less extent um face the same wicked problems the nhs in england does about overfull hospitals and delayed transfers and rising demand and workforce gaps. So whatever you do with structures will only take you so far if you don't have the staff or you don't have the capacity. But, I mean, I'm a clinician first and foremost who's dabbled a bit in the policy world, and it's it's frustrating the endless fixation on redrawing organograms and lines of accountability. So I think you're right. If we have a meaningful set of performance indicators uh, that the whole system can be measured against and move away from sectional interests of each organisation. I think that has to be the way to go. And uh, I'd rather see that than endless rearranging of, of deck shares. Uh, I mean, I'm 56 in a couple of months. I'd quite like it if uh, before I retire, we don't see any more big bang reorganisations. and we Because <laughs> let's face it, it's the same clinicians and the same NHS managers and it's a distraction, isn't it? Yeah, and and I guess you know, coming into the NHS from the outside, I'm generally incredibly impressed by the people that I meet. But yet, sometimes I hear things, and I think it's hard to to, to see how something like that can persist. It does reflect bad, you know. So I was talking to a leader the other day who's doing great work around kind of hospital at home or virtual wards. Now, he said the reason he'd been able to do it was because those patients remained, as it were, under the consultant. They, it was the consultant who continued to be responsible for their care, and that's why he'd been able to do it. But in the end, that really ought to be part of community provision. And he said that when he'd been trying to engage his community trust in this, they said, well, no, you know, we don't have the resources to do that, and um, we wouldn't want our patients, as it were, who were the responsibility of acute sector consultants. So, you know, I can't say I fully understood all the kind of ins and outs of it, but there are those moments when you look at the health service and think, my goodness, surely we can kind of bang heads together here. And and if we are going to expand the notions of, of hospital home, which we surely did and did, and you said that earlier, you know, we are going to have to find ways of getting the acute sector and the community sector to work effectively together, aren't we? We are. And uh, actually, for, for listeners, um, there's a very good British Geriatric Society resource that's called Right Place, Right Time, that sets out all the different models of care outside hospital, either to prevent admission or to expedite discharge. And that's got good links to some of the evidence around this. I think I know it's a truism. I know it sounds platitudinous. But if you put the patient first and not the organisational accountabilities first, 
Um, there are people who, if we had better advanced care planning to support them to live well with their long-term conditions, might not run into crisis in the first place. And if they are running into a crisis, we can put some supports in before they end up defaulting into hospital. All day long yesterday, I was seeing people like that who'd been running into trouble over days or weeks. And then the second thing is when they do run into crisis with acute illness or injury, we need to have um, some alternative ways of assessing them at the hospital front door in their own home or in community facilities, including in care homes, by the way, because many people come in from care homes. And the annoying thing is all those models exist. They're all quite well evaluated. There are some great worked examples around the country, but we don't do enough of it for enough people enough of the time to make a difference at that system level. You know, the people who make it into those services will do very well. But we know, for instance, with hospital at home from clinical trials and reviews that the outcomes are just as good, if not a bit better than hospital, uh, and people are less likely to land in a nursing home six months after having hospital at home, you know. So it works and people like it. We're not doing enough of it. But I'm sure that a lot of the reason we've not invested is because uh, the organisational accountabilities drive certain behaviours. Um, and we talk a lot of platitudinous mission statements about person-centred care. But often what we do in effect is organisational-centred care. It's part of the issue here, uh, David, that we just need to recognise more explicitly that people want very different things out of the health service. That we have these two doorways... Uh, primary care and e in, and ED and the, the way the system works is people are thrust towards each these two doorways but yet what most people want from the health service most of the time is simply a diagnosis and to be triaged if they've got a problem and that's a very different need you know when it comes to that you don't really want wrap around this or anyone to worry about your life in general or anything else you just want to know whether you've got a problem and to be referred to somebody if you do that's very different from the kind of people that you're spending most of your time dealing with who who've got long-term conditions for whom the issue is partly about health but it's also about their broader the quality of life and around the around the kind of support they've got because they're going to be living with their illness um, and that's different again from i guess dementia which although it you know, although it has a, a base as a as a as a as a, as a disease, um, it, there is no there's no effective medical intervention right now. So you're talking about you know managing that, and I've, I've seen good examples of of doing things differently in terms of dementia. But I guess my question is, do we in the health service just need to find ways of being able to recognise that what people want is different, and that therefore we need to be directing them more more to services that match their need? You know, I, th I think that's right. The, the, the reason there's such a focus on people with multiple long-term conditions, including dementia and frailty and, you know, especially older people and health inequalities, because the multimorbidity and frailty can happen in your 40s and 50s in deprived council wards, you know, ageing happens earlier, is because that group of people consume an awful lot of hospital bed occupancy, an awful lot of GP time, an awful lot of resource. And there are a lot of the people who are in receipt of social care. So you can't solve any of the problems in the health service without addressing the needs of that group of people. But that group who do need some proactive care planning and some wraparound services and some carer support um, ha are a very different constituency, as you say, from maybe younger, fitter people living with one long-term condition 
or have short-lived self-limiting illness or injury or need elective care. I mean, I'm, I'm personally um, a defender and supporter of a you know state-funded, state-provided NHS model. But I do worry that increasingly with generational shift, you, you'll have people who are used to the convenience of travel booking sites and Amazon who won't want the more monolithic uh, offer. And I think there is something about doing things differently for the different um, constituencies. Um, but sometimes the political solutions um, are not based on um, what the real issues are. And, and if you look at what's happening with uh, overcrowding and pressure on beds, it is not minor walk-in low triage category people. They may be responsible for lots of the additional pressure at the front door, but it's people who need beds, and there's nowhere to admit them to that's the issue. But anyway, I think you're right. We, we have to redesign the offer based on what different groups of people want from the service. And I think part of this is about access. Um, I, I, I chatted a few days ago to, to folk in the Bristol Dementia Service, and, and, and what I, you know, having been around somebody who's gone through dementia uh, what i found just kind of i mean they i think they're pretty well resourced and they'd recognize they're well resourced and so there's an issue about how realistic it is to want to replicate what they do but they just said one thing and i thought my my goodness as a carer that would have been transformative and and what they said was once you are referred to the dementia service you're in our service for life and i compared that to I think what most people's experience is if they are living with somebody carrying with some dementia, which is that you you trog along and things start to deteriorate and you get to your first crisis, which is the diagnosis. And then you get the diagnosis. And then generally you're told, well, you know, you've got the diagnosis, go away and, you know, do your best to see how you cope. And then you hit another crisis, which is you can no longer cope. And so you get some kind of social care provision and the person gets a place in a day center or something. And then you stay at that level until you hit another crisis, which is the point at which you might need a care home. And and this kind of staccato process of, of, of getting to a point and then being left alone and then getting to another point and being left alone, and each point feeling that you've got to kind of struggle and go through the same process. And then when you listen to a service say, you know, as soon as you get a diagnosis in this service, we're with you for life and we will support you on the journey, that... I, I just thought, my goodness, that must be a completely different experience. And and I, I also feel the same way about mental health, that some of the best mental health provision I've seen is is open. It You know, anyone can come in. People don't necessarily need to see a clinician. They just need to, to be with other people. They need to be in a supportive environment. Talking to other people who share their problems may be the best thing to do. But we, 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 the, so much in the NHS is about controlling access. And I wonder whether sometimes that's not even counterproductive, that actually if we opened up access, we might find that, that actually we reduce demand. No, I, I think that's right. If you take the example of outpatients, which have been slightly neglected in the policy world, unless it's two-week cancer ways, we're often bringing people up mechanistically for routine six-month follow-ups, when actually in a lot of cases what they probably want is a one-stop clinic where they get all their initial investigations and then from that point on the flexibility to contact someone in the clinic when they want a bit of advice or reassurance or to be seen. And at the moment we're probably using a lot of slots dragging people up for for routine follow-up that doesn't add any particular value. And as you say, other things like peer support, 
social prescribing, etc., have uh, utility. But access probably has been the defining issue in terms of political priorities for quite some time, hasn't it? One of the people I've heard speak quite a few times uh, since I got the job is Charlotte August, who runs uh, National Voices, and she's she's brilliant. And and one of the things I heard her say that I thought I thought was very powerful and it w- was that we don't get as much as we should out of the interactions we have with patients. So she said, for example, lots of people on waiting lists don't even know why they're on the waiting list. They don't know whether they're on the waiting list for a diagnosis or for a treatment that remarkably high numbers of people with long term conditions haven't been given or at least don't understand the basic advice about how they should be managing their condition, managing their lives. So her point was, if every interaction we had with the health service actually gave us all the information that it could give us and empowered us we'd be much more productive but but somehow though the interaction tone the health service aren't aren't we're not you and not using that point of contact as well as we should do, do you do you recognize that yeah i think that's right but i think from the perspective of a, a busy clinician it, it's become very transactional because of the workload pressure so if if you're the gp and you're trying to crack on through 50 60 contacts a day and all the administration or if you're an a and e doctor you, the, the relentless pressure of next, next, next. So I've got to get around 28 people on a ward round, you know, in four hours of a morning or, uh, you know, so you're constantly thinking about not just the person in front of you, but the next people. Where I see this working well that you've described, when I have patients who are on the books of, say, the Parkinson's um, disease nurse practitioner or the palliative care nurse specialist or the heart failure nurse they have real confidence in those people because they have a therapeutic relationship with them and they swear by what they say and they're always pleased to see them because people in those kind of roles are not just dishing out the drugs. They're helping people navigate the system. They're helping people, you know, understand what to do when there's a crisis, you know, help access other supports with their lives. And I think certainly for people living with long-term medical problems, we need more of that care planning and that that person that coordinator alongside people but i think from the perspective of the health professional your time is limited and you've always got your eye on the clock and you're under tremendous pressure to uh, get people seen make decisions find beds as early in the day as possible if you're in my kind of job and so that doesn't you know time is precious and the key to time yes you can take some of the admin tasks out of our job so we can work a bit smarter but most of all, the existential threat facing the service is the workforce crisis. And we've still yet to see a meaningful uh, workforce uh, plan. And some of that's training more people, but some of it's treating them better um, and giving them more flexibility and support so they don't want to retire or leave the service or scale down their hours. You know, if we don't crack that problem, we won't have the time to provide the more bespoke type of information you're talking about. Yeah, so it feels as though we're kind of caught in a kind of high-intensity, low-productivity trap, which is that people are working incredibly hard and in 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 doing so being, being required to work in ways which aren't as fulfilling as they should be for the people who do the work, which is one of the reasons why people walk away, but probably in the end are not, are not high productivity. I mean, I remember research years and years ago about the fact that if GPs spend twice as long 
in a consultation with the patient, that patient is half as likely to come back again in the in the near future because they and you know so how do we we've got to somehow move to a different le- lower intensity higher productivity equilibrium, haven't we? I think the GPs know that, and it's the same as a hospital doctor. I mean, there's a lot of talk in clinical circles about moral distress or moral injury, which is when you're perfectly well aware that because of the system you're working in, you can't give people a quality of care that you'd like to be able to do or that you could be proud of or that you'd be happy for a member of your own family to have, and constantly work in an environment where you know you're not giving the standard of care you'd like, and also where you're always on the cusp of missing something, you know, of mistakes or errors is not a satisfying position to be in. And I think we'd all agree we'd like to be able to give uh, people more time. Some of that's about reducing uh, unnecessary admin burden. Some of it's about filling the workforce gaps. Some of it's about reducing demand through some of the ways we've uh, discussed through better focus on prevention and upstream care. And the whole time I've been involved in the kind of health policy world, there's been loads of rhetoric about we need to move towards a wellness service and prevention and public health. But actually, the policy direction has been the diametric opposite. We've slashed local government and public health funding. We've consistently failed to enact meaningful policy around inequality or food and drink and alcohol pricing. We've cut addiction services. So if we really want to focus on prevention and well-being so we can therefore reduce burden and also give uh, people the chance to work at the top of their clinical pay grade, giving more time to patients, we've got to put our money where our mouth is, and we haven't at the moment. David, that's a strong point to end on. Thank you so much for giving me your time. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Confed Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool. <laughs>